0: This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel challenge. The status quo. It's, it's never
1: this- easy to yeah. challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman.
0: Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough.
1: All of that fear and worry—it all upregulates our nervous puts us into fight or flight mode
0: and increases our pain sensitivity and what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. In today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Paul Gittens, one of the country's leading specialists in sexual function for men and women and the founder of the Centers for Sexual Medicine in Philadelphia and New York City. In our discussion, he shares the top three sexual health conditions his male patients present with and offers incredible wisdom both men and women should have at their fingertips. Hearing him speak on a recent panel, it became evident his deep knowledge and compassion for patients is exactly the kind of information I'd like to share with you. Please welcome Dr. Giddens.
1: Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a while.
0: So the reason why I wanted to bring you in today is a couple of points. So one, I met you at the Endo Summit, not actually face-to-face, but I did see you on the panel and had the fortune of being introduced to you. And you had such an empathetic way to talk about sexual health for both men and women. And I definitely worked hard to make sure I uh, got the introduction to you so that you could share your wisdom with a broader audience. Additionally, Last year, I attended the American Society for Reproductive Medicine conference, and there was a physician who happened to be a male who shared interesting data that I think we all intuitively know, but hearing a doctor presenting this, I think gave it even more credibility, which is men tend to only go to a doctor when their mother, wife, or sister tends to recommend them to go. And meanwhile, they may have issues that they either don't want to deal with or don't know that they can deal with. Additionally, while a lot of the times on this podcast, I talk about how there's lack of data for women's health, a lack of awareness around some important aspects of women's health for both women and for clinicians, there's a different aspect to look at for men's health, which is there's such a societal pressure for what men could or should be that I believe it impacts even what men may seek help for. And so I think given the dynamics of how things work with men's health, I thought it would be really important to share your wisdom with our audience, because one, if a lot of our listeners are women, maybe they can encourage the men in their lives to see clinicians and seek help for the right things and from the right clinicians. Um, But also for those who men are listening, um, making sure that they're fully educated as well. So thank you again for making time.
1: Thanks again, and I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I missed that ASRM uh, meeting, but I think the physician was, was correct in his statement. Most men don't pay attention to their health until it's um, it's really too late. But I think this all goes back to how men are socialized. You know, um, when they're younger, they're really taught to be tough and to ignore aches and pains, and and then you know, as they grow older in their you know teens and twenties, they, they feel like they're indestructible. And then in their 30s and 40s, they've maybe finished, they're starting their career, et cetera, and then they become too busy. And then around their 50s, they realize that, you know, they maybe should have gone to the physician and they should have paid attention to those aches and pains. And now at at that point, they're they're fearful of possibly undergoing an exam and possibly having some some issues um, like cancer or uh, high blood pressure or diabetes, et cetera. So um, I think it is socialized. And, and when you look at um, women, you know, women are, they're introduced to physicians a lot earlier than men. They're, um, they're introduced to their GYN and um, their, their family practitioner a lot earlier than men. And so there may be that comfort level that they have that men don't have.
0: So before we dive further into some of the areas that you tend to see in your practice, I thought it would be helpful to give a little bit of color around what it is that you do to help men. I know that you also work with women, so it's not just men, but I know right now we're going to focus on men's health. So maybe you can get uh, give a little bit of a, a background on that and why it is that you came to doing what you do today.
1: So uh, going back to my um, just training, so I'm a board-certified urologist and I also have an associate professorship, a clinical associate professorship in OBGYN. So going through residency, um, general urology training, um, I found that there was a need to treat men for sexual dysfunction. And one of the main reasons is uh, at that time, nobody really paid any attention to it. I had a personal experience where uh, as a resident, I, um, I was following a patient for prostate cancer and he had had surgery. And uh, one of my attendings who was um, an oncologist came in the room and said, listen, your prostate cancer is now healed. So your PSA is low, which is prostate-specific antigen. Um, and so I've operated on you and your, uh, your cancer is non-existent. After he left the room, I, you know, as a resident, you're, you're taking notes and you're running around and trying to do everything you can to be a good physician. And I'm in the room by myself and, and the male who was actually a, a pretty prominent member masculine member in the community, he just started crying, you know, and I couldn't understand why he was crying. So after talking to him for about 20 minutes, he told me that, you know, um, that he was obviously ecstatic that his prostate cancer uh, was removed and that the likelihood of it coming back was pretty low, but he suffered from low libido. He suffered from erectile dysfunction and it was really disrupting his relationship at home. And from there, I, I took that experience and I furthered my training in sexual health uh, for men and then also for women. And so I've developed my practice kind of from this one experience that I that I had.
0: When you and I first met over the phone, I did not know that this was an experience that you had that led to today. So thank you for sharing that story. And it's amazing how the little things that happen to us in life, you never know where it leads, and I'm sure that patient is so grateful to have had that 20 minutes with you.
1: So now my practice is uh, it's varied. So I treat men with erectile difficulties. You know, anything from low testosterone hormonal management to problems with ejaculation and orgasm. Uh, we have a special program for sex after and sexual health after prostate cancer. And then another uh, large part of my practice is male infertility, which. Um, I also uh, did a fellowship in on the male side.
0: Now, one of the things before we dive into some of these areas that you work with, uh, with your male patients is how they come to you. So one of the things that's fascinated me since my 10 year fertility journey began, and I've been in the biopharmaceutical industry my entire career. So I've seen firsthand the nuances of how the overall industry works, how doctors are trained and how the path is that a patient goes from clinician to clinician to ultimately be treated for a given condition. And I know that urologists are certainly available to men, but one of the things I'm also learning is there's subspecialties in a lot of these areas. So maybe you could talk a little little bit about the patient journey of what men tend to face when they may have an issue and have to search for the answers, especially with that added taboo um, of being afraid to talk about some of these issues given the cultural expectations on men. So maybe you can walk through that journey of maybe the challenges they face and maybe an ideal way that they could handle it.
1: If a male has a, or when a male has um, any type of sexual dysfunction or male infertility in particular, it's, it's really a blow to You know, at least it's my opinion, it's a blow to who they feel they are as a person. It could affect their self-esteem. We know there are high rates of depression. It can affect their relationships, you know, sexual relationships, as well as just emotional bonding with their partner, you know, male or female for sexual dysfunction. Um, And so it takes a lot for a, um, a male to feel comfortable enough to find help. Usually the first, you know, usually the first person they'll they'll the first thing they'll do is actually go on the internet and they go on the internet and they search whatever term it is that they have. So if it's erectile dysfunction, if it's problem with ejaculation, male infertility, that's the keywords that they do. From there, oftentimes a male will probably go to their urologist or primary care doctor and seek help first. I think the way they find me, I think the it's the problem with the system. I think that our traditional medical system, we don't sit down and talk to our patients as much as we used to. Uh, I think that's part of just the business of medicine, sadly, right? And so oftentimes they'll go to their primary care doctor and um, they may speak to them for about five to 10 minutes and then they're rushed out of the office. And then they may go to another primary care doctor or another urologist and they get rushed out of the office again and then their problem isn't being addressed. When I see patients, it's usually after they've seen three or four physicians and they're just tired of being shuffled around and they're tired of that they're, they're upset that their needs, haven't, their needs haven't been met. And then they find me uh, and then we work through everything pretty slowly. And then hopefully we, um, we get to the, uh, the bottom of their problem.
0: So what would you say are some of the most common conditions that you tend to see in your practice?
1: So by far the most common condition I see is erectile difficulties um, with men, uh, and that's so erectile dysfunction, uh, which I like to call erectile difficulties, is a um, is the inability to have an erection um, that um, allows a man to complete having intercourse, and uh, we break that down to a couple different phases. There's an initiation phase where they're either uh, building up to the erection, and then there's the maintenance phase, which allows them to uh, move to a climax. So that's one of the biggest issues I see. And the causes of that are varied, you know, and, uh, you know, I see men that have had high blood pressure, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, it could be because of medication, neurological problems, it could be because of stress, just a number of things that can contribute to erectile dysfunction. So I would say that's probably the number one thing I see in my practice for men. But also um, I may see men with low libido, which is just not having the urge to have intercourse. Um, So I would say that that would probably be the second most common thing. And then the third most common thing I see in the office would be male infertility. And that's um, obviously when a couple are trying to conceive and the man might not have been worked up or the female have not been worked up, we do a semen analysis and we see that the male has low sperm counts or problems with their semen analysis.
0: So given these are the, the top three, why don't we take each of those and, and maybe educate people about them? And I do want to make sure we also com- cover some of the uncommon ones, because when I was looking through your website, I found some conditions that I wasn't even aware of. And so it, it might be helpful to even share with the audience some things that could be an issue that someone may not even know is one and they, that they can seek help for it. So I liked, so what you called erectile dysfunction, you had a different term for it. Can you share that again?
1: Yeah, I call it, um, I call it erectile difficulties. I just don't like the, the word dysfunction because it means that it doesn't work. It probably won't work. Um, where difficulties are more what men have uh, for the most part. They're having a problem either with starting the erection oftentimes or keeping the erection, where they can have a combination of both. And so I like to use the word difficulties as opposed to dysfunction.
0: I had a feeling that's what it was, but I, I wanted to give you the opportunity to expand on that. Now, an initial reaction could be, well, why don't people just take Viagra? Now, I know in my own time within the industry, within healthcare, I've come to learn that you know it's really important to understand the root cause of a condition and not always take the medication right away, although medication serves many, many helpful purposes. So it sounds like from just a couple of the things you stated that there are some underlying things a man can do. So I'd love to hear about your thoughts around the usage of medications like Viagra and then some of the things that you can do to support men with um, erectile difficulties.
1: Of course. So there's so many different etiologies of erectile dysfunction. And the way I explain it to my patient, it's erectile dysfunction is not like breaking your arm. So you break your arm, you put a cast on it, and everyone is healed in the same manner for the most part. Where erectile dysfunction has so many different pathways that lead to the difficulties that then a person can get. So as I mentioned, there's vasculogenic pathway. So that's more cardiovascular. It could be hypertension. That could be diabetes. That could be high cholesterol. There's neurological components. So men with Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's or a stroke could have erectile difficulties. There could be some issues with um, the tissues of the penis, which can uh, lead to scarring. Um, There's other areas like hormonal therapy, So sorry, like hormonal causes, which uh, could be low testosterone or problems with their thyroid. Other causes could be, um, it could be caused by medications. So we know that antidepressants and antipsychotics and recreational drug use and too much alcohol can cause issues. And then there's also that we used to say psychogenic, which is another word that's kind of like my ED uh, pet peeve you know, we don't like, at least I don't like to say psychological, I like to say more adrenaline mediated erectile difficulties. And so what that means is essentially we have this, we have this fight or flight response. And what happens is when that happens, uh, your adrenaline goes up and adrenaline is also uh, epinephrine. And when adrenaline goes up, what happens is blood flow leaves the penis and it goes to your arms and your legs so you can fight or you can run. And so uh, what happens when a person gets into a situation where it might be anxiety-provoking because they've uh, failed so many times before, they may have a stressful relationship, the adrenaline goes up, and then what happens is blood flow leaves the penis, and it goes to your arms and legs. Your body doesn't really know the difference. So we like to say adrenaline-mediated. I don't like to say psychological anymore. And, And so in terms of the therapy, so with all those causes, there've got to be more than one therapy. You know, everybody has a go-to of um, PD-5s, which are phosphodiesterase inhibitors, which is Viagra, which are Cialis, which is Levitra. Those are the medications that are used for that and they're helpful. But with all those etiologies, you have to understand there's so many other pathways to help with erectile dysfunction. So there's hormonal pathways. So sometimes it's increasing a person's testosterone or balancing their thyroid. You know, for for some of the other pathways like the medications pathways, it's combing through all their medications and finding the ones that might be contributing to their erectile difficulties and taking those out, maybe substituting them with something else. If they're on psychiatric meds, sometimes it's recommending uh, something to their their psychiatrist or their primary care doctor, let's change this because this is something that could be causing their erectile difficulties. We also know that when you look at cardiovascular disease and you look at stroke, they're highly correlated with erectile dysfunction. So when it comes to men's health, we try to encourage better diets. We try to encourage losing weight. We try to develop a a better um, and healthier lifestyle. Going back to the types of therapies, there are a number of therapies that we use. Um, We do use um, some therapies that are FDA approved, such as Viagra, Cialis, in combination with all the things that I mentioned, uh, we use something called core wave therapy, which is low-intensity wave therapy, and this actually helps to rehabilitate the penis. So we're getting better blood flow into the penis, which is providing better volume into the penis and better rigidity. Uh, We use something called PRP, which is platelet-rich plasma. There's other things such as pumps, injectable therapy, which brings blood flow to the penis, and then last resorts. Uh, the last resort is something called like a penile implant, where it's actually a surgical procedure where we place a implant in the penis. And when a person's interested in having intercourse, there's a little pump in the scrotum, which they're able to uh, press, which then brings fluid to the cylinders that are placed in the penis, and they're able to get an erection. So there's tons of therapies that are out there. But I think it first starts with Looking at the individual, trying to figure out what's wrong with them. You know, we do ultrasounds of of the blood flow going to and from the penis, and then coming up with an individual plan for each and every person. And I think that is what makes you know someone that has been trained to do this a little different from just the average uh, person out there.
0: What would you recommend then to women to men? Excuse me, when they are having these challenges? Would you, you know, say to them, go to your primary care doctor and and make sure that you're asking the right questions and then if, and hopefully they would recommend them to a specialist like you, like what would be that pathway? I think right now just creating the awareness is so important, Um, but then what can they do about it to make sure that they're seeking the right treatment?
1: I think it's really, um, first of all, I think they have to um, uh, want to be helped. And there's a lot of men that are out there, and they have a problem, and they um, they don't know where to go, obviously, and, and they're nervous about talking to someone about it. So I think first being comfortable with a physician that you can talk to. I also think finding a physician that takes this seriously. You know, I take sexual health just as seriously as if someone had cancer. And so um, I think finding a physician that might be fellowship trained in sexual medicine or has a practice that focuses on um, erectile difficulties, I think is kind of the first step uh, in, in doing so. And, you know, there's some, in the sexual medicine society, there's um, a list of physicians that kind of focus on, uh, on, on sexual health, and that would probably be a good start.
0: And you mentioned that the first step is wanting to get help. So for those who are listening, who may say, okay, this is great information maybe I should get help, but I'm still struggling, embarrassed, or insert whatever emotion is coming to you now as you're listening, what would you say to them about how someone like you would handle the emotional state that a man may come in with when trying to seek help?
1: So I think that when an individual is looking for help, I think looking at a a practice which takes more of a multidisciplinary approach. In my practice, for, for men that I feel that have a high adrenaline-mediated erectile dysfunction, you know, I make sure that we, you know, I have a, a network of uh, psychologists and psychiatrists that can actually sit down and talk to them about their issues, which I think is important. I also work with some pelvic floor physical therapists if I think that if it's a problem with the pelvic floor, which is causing their erectile dis- difficulties. Just a a number of things, you know, looking at a practice that focuses on this, I think, is the most important thing and takes this seriously. But going back to the original question, I think the first step is to um, maybe talk to your primary care doctor. And if your primary care doctor is uncomfortable with treating the problem, then asking him for a referral and if you're not happy, you have to be your own advocate. I'm, a, you know, I'm a, I'm a big promoter of being your own advocate in healthcare, and finding someone that is willing to help you and has the same desire for a good outcome as you do.
0: You're reminding me now by these statements of one of the reasons why I wanted to connect with you, which is, at the Indo Summit when you were presenting, you spoke a lot about how even clinicians are often uncomfortable talking to their patients about sexual health. So maybe you could elaborate a bit on that because it it seems like the challenge comes from both parties being willing to talk about some of these challenges.
1: Oh, yes, definitely. You know, as physicians, we're just not trained to talk about sexual intimacy at all. You know, if you look at our training, we we spend four years in college and, and most of those years are spent in a library. And then we go to medical school and most of that time is spent studying basic science and learning about anatomy and physiology. Uh, and then you do residency and you focus on whatever your field is. And in urology, it's mostly surgical as well as some, you know, we, we deal with prostate cancer and kidney stones. So where is sexual health in our training? It's not there. And so when a, a uh, patient comes to the office or goes to a, a physician's office, you know, the physician wants to use all the tools that he's been taught to use, which are uh, medications as well as surgery. Um, but there is an aspect, there's the personal aspect that is missing. And so the the, the physician has to be comfortable enough to, or have had the training to know how to talk about these personal issues. So when, you know, I've heard this so many times when a, a patient goes to an office and they complain of sexual dysfunction, the physician just being defensive may say, listen, you're too old. You don't need to have intercourse or, you know, go read a book or, and that all comes from there. I believe their their lack of training and insecurity about maybe their own um, sexuality, um, but also just not having the right tools. I mean, as physicians, we want to be heroes. We want to be able to save the day. And when we don't have the tools to be able to accomplish that, then we, then we kind of become um, a little bit um, self-conscious. And, um, and then we may say things that um, kind of uh, put patients in a situation where they'll have to kind of search for other help uh, because we can't provide it for them.
0: My takeaway from it is if anyone goes to a clinician and feels uncomfortable or not taken care of after leaving, don't give up. Find a place where you're heard and you're listened to because that help is out there. You know, I'd hate for someone to already be in an emotional distress state, go to a clinician. And you know, have these dynamics, and then give up and feel like there's something wrong with them. And it, it's so good to know that there is a path forward, and to better understand the root cause of why this dynamic exists.
1: I 100% agree with you. There's um, there's so many patients that come into my office, and just see them once, and we just literally look, my first consultation is usually about an hour, and we really sit down and we do an exam, and we just try to just go through all the issues that they're having. And without even doing anything, they come back for their follow up appointment, and they say, "Listen, Doctor, it's like I don't know why, but I just feel better already. You know, my you know my arousal's better, or my orgasms are better if they're a woman, or my erections um, are better uh, if they're a male." And I think it's just they've just been carrying such a weight around, and it's just they're finally able to talk to someone who understands, but most importantly, listens to their issues. And I think that's really half of what I do. Is and I think, and not just me. I'm not trying to focus on me, but I think it's, it's half of what we should do as physicians is really just listen to our patients.
0: Absolutely. So we've covered erectile difficulty. Now let's talk about the second that was on your list with which is low libido. Now I wouldn't be surprised if some of the root causes of erectile difficulty. Also, potentially impact low libido, but I don't want to make assumptions, so i'll let you, the expert uh, educate us about that
1: well you you can make the assumption because you're absolutely right <laughs> you know um and obviously, yes, so I have um many men that have erectile difficulties, and they spend multiple nights on the couch uh, because they don't want to um enter the bedroom or they'll fight with their spouse so. There's that, there's that tension, and so they don't have to have intercourse. But also, ED, because of sometimes men will have depression, they'll have lower self-worth, low self-esteem, and that leads to um, lack of desire to have intercourse. And so you're absolutely right. So sometimes by fixing the erectile difficulties that they may have will increase their libido. So you're absolutely right. Other issues, other problems that can lead to lower libido are hormonal issues. That's a, it's, a, it's a big issue as, as men grow older. Um, men lose about 10% of their testosterone every decade. And it really depends on where they started from. And so with lower testosterone levels, they can have issues with libido, uh, issues with erections, which leads to a lower uh, desire to have uh, any kind of in- intimacy with their partners. So that's a, that's a major thing. Also, you know, there's other pathways to libido that many people don't recognize. There's dopamine. Dopamine is really important for libido. So we always promote um, exercise. Exercise is a great way to to increase dopamine. And there's, there's some studies for men and women, actually women after with breast cancer who exercise and increase their dopamine have higher uh, rates of libido after exercise. So, you know, for my men, we always promote exercise and there's other pathways. There's norepinephrine, which is a pathway. Um, and there's some medications that can increase that. A big pathway is this melatonin receptor agonist, uh, which is a pathway which has been found to increase sexual desire in men and in women. There's actually FDA approved product that came up for women just recently. So there's a number of different pathways to increase libido, but once again, it's trying to fight, figure out what is the cause, doing the right testing um, doing the right physical exam and then coming up with a plan for that particular patient.
0: Okay, so it seems like low libido and erectile difficulty may, in in a lot of cases, be intertwined.
1: It can be, but you know, I also see an, a number of men that have very good erectile function, but they also have some lower. They also have low um, low libido. Okay. And so, we'll, you know, we will do a whole hormonal panel. We will do a physical exam, and then we'll place them on medications that can help to. Increase their libido, but also in the combination of uh, with the combination of increasing, you know, their lifestyle um, activities. So, um, exercising, diet. We know that increasing muscle mass can increase testosterone, which can increase libido. We know that decreasing stress can increase libido. We know that getting enough sleep can increase libido. So, there's a number of different pathways to get there. We just have to figure out what's going on with that particular person.
0: Now, let's touch on the third area that you mentioned, which is infertility.
1: Male infertility. So let's just talk about infertility in general. And so if you know 100 couples, right, about 12 to 13, 15-ish, will have some fertility issues. So it's really, really common, extremely common. And if you plug in on the internet, if you put infertility, I would say most of the literature is on female um, infertility not much on men, but if you look at the data, it, it, you'll see that men actually uh, account for about a third of fertility. There's, there's the um, women account for another third, and then there's a combined factor where there's a little bit of men, a little bit of women, that's another third. So even though a lot of emphasis is on the female portion of fertility, men can also contribute just as much. And I think that when you look at the data, Men are hardly ever tested until the very end. So the typical scenario is that a couple's having problems conceiving, a woman sees her GYN, maybe gets referred to a fertility specialist. They do hundreds of thousands dollars of tests. Everything comes out normal and they say, oh, let's talk about your, your partner. Uh, we do a semen analysis and it's low, or uh, there's some problems with the motility, uh, which is how they move, or the morphology, which is how they look. And then after the $100,000 worth of tests and six months later, we're finally looking at the man. And so I think that's, and I think that's a huge problem.
0: Consumer sector of women's health. Visit www.femtechconsumerinnovation.com to view the superstar speaker lineup and enter code FEMPOWER15 for 15% off your ticket. Hope to see you there.
1: There's a number of causes of male infertility. There's there's hormonal causes um, that, can, um, that can factor into it there's physical issues. So there could be some problems with the testicle itself or the veins leading to the the testicle. There's um, chronic illness can cause some issues. There's sexual problems that can cause issues. Uh, There's genetic problems. And there's these things in the environment um, that can also cause some problems with uh, male infertility. So my job is when a male comes into the office to rule all those things out and try to figure out a way to either increase their um, their sperm count so they can have a natural conception, get their sperm counts to the point, or get their sperm counts to a point where they can go through IVF or something called IUI, which is intrauterine insemination. And then there's another set of patients that come in with no sperm counts at all. And my job is to do some surgery, is to do a surgery where we can go into the testicle and then remove um, some of the the, um, sperm that's there that we're not seeing in the semen analysis pass that on to an IVF team so a couple can, can have a child.
0: Wow. I have so many questions in there. So I'll, I'll try to go in order based on the statements that you made. So the first is the number that you quoted around 85% of, pay, of couples struggle with infertility. And I'd love to understand how that number came about. And here's why I ask.
1: You know what? I'm sorry, Jordan. I mean, yep. it was, it's, it's actually 15% of couples. It was 85%. So sorry, 15% of couples. Uh, struggle. Okay. So I want to, I, I want to go back and say that.
0: Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure. Um, okay. Sometimes it feels like 85% and that's, that's what I, I was going to get into because <laughs> I tell you when, when I was going through my own journey, I think every single person I spoke to either was struggling or knew of someone who was struggling. So sometimes I do question that data and feel like it's more people than than we imagine or maybe it's just because I happen to live in a city where people tend to try to conceive later. But the good news is, you know, we're not alone and there is help out there. So you mentioned about increasing sperm count. Well, actually let me step back. As far as the the way that Men are diagnosed you're right. It is true that it does seem to be the woman is looked at first, a battery of tests are done, and you know oftentimes late in the game is when the men are looked at. I know that there's a lot of startups now that are starting to focus just on men's fertility and where there's at home testing and things like that. But perhaps you could talk about why there's that dynamic of the women getting tested first and men are being looked at as an afterthought?
1: I mean, I think that um, once again, it kind of goes back to, you know, how men and women are different when it comes to healthcare. I think that women are just in general, they're exposed to the healthcare system a lot earlier than men. And so there's usually that dialogue that they have with their primary care doctor or with their OBGYN. So I think that's one of the, I think that's a major reason uh were men i remember personally it's like the first time i saw a physician was i mean besides of besides outside of getting immunizations was when i was in high school i needed a physical exam and then after that you know i haven't i didn't i haven't seen a physician in a while you know after that and i mean it was in college when i the last time i saw another physician so i think the access to to healthcare is um is important and And I think that's probably one of the main drivers. Another thing is that nobody, you know, there's not a lot of education out there that male infertility really exists and that it is so common. So I I think that when a couple is, when they're looking um, for reasons that could be causing them to have some some issues with fertility, everything is staring towards the woman. And so the woman is the one that's going to go to the physician because most likely, and I'm, I'm putting quotations up. Most likely, it's her, and it's not the male. Uh, where that's not, and that where that's obviously not true. And so, I think for those two reasons, I think those are the main two reasons why um, you know men don't seek out a, a physician early. And then when the uh, the patient goes to their physician, it's really focused on. It's more female focused, and it's focused on trying to figure out why she has the problem. So I think they're suffering from the same problems is a general population where they're not really looking at the male. And so you have seen a lot of these startups that are promoting, you know, testing for, uh, for male infertility, but they're only looking at, the only problem with the startups with semen analyses, they're only looking at one factor. And when you look at the accuracy of the test, you know, there is a margin of error where you could have some sperm, which, you know, if you have 100 sperm or 200 sperm, it's not showing up that you have any because of the, of the error of tests. So I think it should be a combination of doing a semen analysis, but also coming in for a physical exam. So maybe if you find something that's reversible, so for instance, if they're on testosterone, right? Because we know that testosterone causes, is a huge cause of male infertility. As a physician, you take them off, you place them on the right medications, and then they can function normally and have um, a normal conception.
0: Got it. So you mentioned about the testosterone impacting sperm count. What are some other things that impact sperm count and that can be done uh, to help it?
1: So uh, there's a number of things. So uh, hormonally, in order to make sperm and testosterone, uh, there's um, there's a hormonal access that has to be intact. So And if you look at males that have uh, fertility issues, um, a number of them will have lower testosterone and testosterone is used by the sperm to ma- help mature, uh, helps mature the sperm. And so by replacing their testosterone carefully, you can't use it with testosterone, There's you have to use it with medications that naturally increase a, a man's testosterone. You can use that to increase sperm count. So hormone, there are a lot of hormonal causes. Also, for instance, if a male has a pituitary lesion or if they have an elevation in their prolactin, then that can also inhibit um, the hormonal response. There's some physical causes. So um, there's men that may have had a, two, a, like a bilateral hernia repairs, which could cause some obstruction of sperm. There's some men that have dilated veins in their scrotum. They're kind of like varicose veins that you'll see in back of someone's legs, but they're in the scrotum. And that can cause excess heat and excess oxidation to the sperm, which can also uh, lower their count or lower their motility. There's uh, chronic illness. So we know that chronic illness, so fevers and, and um, any kind of illness can also lower uh, sperm counts. Um, there's also toxins. So we know that marijuana use and and some men um, cigarette smoking and too much alcohol can also lower sperm counts. So there's. Uh, a number of reasons, um, as well as one of, the, one of the reasons I didn't mention was genetics. And so there's some men that have some particular genetic abnormalities, which prevents them from either having sperm or having the normal parameters that we look for in the, in the semen analysis.
0: One of the things that drives me is knowing that anything is possible. Like I like to look at problems and say, some way, somehow there's a way to solve this. So I wanted to talk to you about um, you mentioning the no sperm count situation. And what I'd love for you to do is is help educate everyone on what happens if um, it is discovered that a man doesn't have sperm count. And um, I know that some say surgery can be done. Some say only in certain cases will it work. Some say um, in certain cases it will never work. And again, because I you know, always like to view things from a place of hope and talking to the experts in their subspecialties, I think it would be great to educate people on, okay, so if it is shown through testing that a man doesn't have sperm count, what, what are the realistic odds of being able to do this surgery and have success?
1: Yeah. So I, I think we're, once again, we're pretty, I mean, I've We've talked multiple times, and they we're so similar. I'm I'm the eternal optimist. You know, I think there's always a way <laughs> to to figure something out, um, and that's true in probably 99% of the times. And so, when we look at low sperm counts, or sorry, no sperm counts, um, you know, my job is to figure out is it a problem with uh, obstruction, meaning that the sperm's not coming out or is it a problem with the factory, All right, with the production of sperm? Is it, is it the fact that the factory is not working well? So I'll talk about the first first. So the first one, uh, which is the obstruction first. So in, in terms of obstruction, obviously, in order for sperm to um, travel from the testicles to the outside world, there's a lot of tubes and a lot of tubules and a lot of area that the sperm have to get to to get to the outside. So, if there's something wrong with the the transit system, um, then when that person gives a semen analysis, they may not see any sperm. Okay, so if there's a problem with um, the vas deferens, the vas deferens is the tube that carries the sperm to essentially the prostate. Um, if <laughs> if the if the um, the patient had an injury or he has a genetic abnormality where there's some scarring or there's absence of that tube, then there's a problem with obstruction. All right. Or it's just like having a vasectomy. Right. Or as I mentioned before, if a person had two hernias, um, two hernia growing hernia repairs um, because of the mesh that um, we use for hernia repair, that could also be obstructing the outflow of sperm. So in those cases, those are usually home run cases. You know, we With a physical exam, with hormonal testing, um, oftentimes we can go into the testicle itself and extract sperm. And then from there, that can be used for IVF. So obst- obstruction is almost every time a home run in terms of um, someone not having sperm and then, then, and then conceiving. When it comes to the manufacturing of sperm, it's a little different. So the way I try to explain to my patient is that think of the testicle as kind of like a bucket, right? It's a bucket of water, right? And everything you see when when the bucket overflows is that you'll see that in your semen analysis. There's some men where that bucket just doesn't overflow. There might be some there might be some water halfway in, but it just doesn't overflow. So you don't see sperm in the ejaculate. So oftentimes what we have to do is we have to go directly into the bucket, make a little hole, get the sperm out, and then use it for IVF. All right. And so in my practice, so what we'll do is we'll use hormonal therapy to maybe increase the, the water in the bucket all right? and then go in with a small little needle or with a small little incision uh, we're able to get the sperm and then use it for IVF. There are conditions though, there are genetic conditions where there's nothing we can do. And usually it's called, um, it's a genetic condition. It's something, um, it's, the, it's, it's, it's called a Y microdeletion. So on the Y chromosome, there's a certain area that is just responsible for making sperm. That's the only thing it does. And so if you have a deletion in that one arm on the, Y chromosome then those are some of the only cases where we're not able to do anything, but it's fairly rare those situations, but in those situations you know the only help after that would be something like donor sperm or or, or adoption or donor embryo et cetera so those are that, I mean that's the quick and dirty of issues with no sperm obviously there's a lot of that comes in between that there's men that I've seen. That have had uh, chemotherapy for uh, for cancer, and in those situations, you know, it just depends on what type of uh, chemotherapy they've used for how long, and then even in those cases, and there's a number of cases that I've had where we would either maximize the patient by maybe placing him on some hormones and then going into the testicle, and a lot of these cases are very successful with IVF.
0: Now I feel like I can't complete the conversation with educating everyone about sperm without talking about vasectomy reversals and i bring this up because i know i've seen many cases where i hear a statement like oh it was a bad reversal so maybe you could talk a little bit about outside of the the typical yes it can be done maybe you can educate people about this discussion around a bad reversal and what could happen and can anything be done should it be a quote unquote bad reversal?
1: So where does the vasectomy reversal come from? So um, there's about, I think it's about 500,000 men that actually undergo vasectomies every year. So a vasectomy is, is the separation of the vas deferens. And as I mentioned before, the vas deferens takes sperm from the testicle and it brings it to the prostate, which then goes to the outside world. And so there are procedures that you can do. Um, so if a couple is interested in having a child the two from a person that have had a vasectomy, really the two options are to undergo IVF, where we go directly into this, the testicle or a small little gland outside the testicle, which is called the epididymis, and we, we draw um, sperm from there, or we um, connect the tubes together. And when we look at which patients are going to be more successful than other patients in terms of bringing those tubes together... Then we look at how long they've had their vasectomy for. So, for instance, a person that had a vasectomy a year ago is going to be more successful than a person that had a vasectomy 20 years ago. Uh, and there's physiologic reasons for that. And so that's one of the first things that we look at, and that can also dictate the prognosis, the the success of of a vasectomy reversal. And there's other little things that we look for. There's little nodules that we look for in the in the in the vas deferens, but when we look at the vasectomy reversal, you also have to look, when you talk about failure, you also have to look at who's doing them. Okay. So, for instance, uh, in my training, we did microsurgical training where uh, we uh, essentially used a large microscope. And this is one of the things that we did two or three times a week where we were just reversing vasectomies. And so that's microsurgical training, which you only get if you're doing a fellowship in. Um, urology and sexual medicine. So uh, a lot of the failures are, and I'm not saying that if you don't do, do a fellowship that you won't have many failures, but many failures could be caused by one, not choosing the right patient, but also not having the right surgical technique. And so for instance, in our, in our practice, our success rate is really high, but it should be, it's because we've I've gone through all the training and I've treated a lot of men. I've, I've done a lot of surgeries for vasectomy reversals. So, if you had a failed reversal, what do you do next? So, there's only two things to do next. One is to go to a surgeon that will do what's called a redo reversal. So, and some patients will go back in and then will redo the reversal, or you go through IVF and um, you do what I, t- I spoke about before, which going uh, into the testicle and extracting the sperm.
0: Thank you. I think that will be an enlightening set of um, data points and information to that people can definitely walk away with. So appreciate your expertise on that. Now, I know I mentioned we could dive into some of the other areas that you cover, um, but I also want to be cognizant of the time that we agreed to. So what I would recommend is for people to check out Dr. Gittin's website, centersforsexualmedicine.com. And in it, there's uh, discussions around some of the other conditions that men may face, such as testicular pain, pelvic pain, Peyronie's disease, which causes a curvature in the penis, and low testosterone, which I know some of it was discussed today. But I would definitely encourage men and women to check out the website to see what other conditions men may face, because again, you may have something that you don't even know can be fixed. So thank you for, for educating us on men's health. So what I'd, I'd like to end with, Dr. Gittins, is what would be the one, one set of wisdom you would impose upon either men or women, or maybe one for each, to ensure that men are optimizing their sexual health?
1: What I would say is to one, you know, be your own advocate. You know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. I think that if you have a problem, don't give up. You know, you may see one physician that maybe doesn't give you the best advice, but I think it's up to you as an individual to go out and to really search for someone that is going to take care of your problem, uh, whatever it might be. If it's sexual dysfunction, if it's male infertility, if, it's, if you're a, a breast cancer survivor and you want to continue your intimate relationship, then I think it's really important that you, uh, that you find somebody that's willing to sit down and really talk to you about your problem and, and give you multiple avenues of, of treatment regimens that, that's going to satisfy whatever you're looking for.
0: And what would you say, given how much of your career you've spent on this, is your greatest hope for men's health?
1: My greatest hope for men's health. Um, I mean, men's health is such a, a big, big topic. You know, when 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 we um, talk about men's health, obviously there's a sexual component, but there's the the hypertension, there's the diabetes component, there's the colonoscopy component, there's so many, there's the, the exercise, the, the psychological wellness component of it. You know, I think, you know, I hope that we can, I think it starts when, when men are or boys are, are younger. You know, I think, I think it's important that we instill in our young boys that, one, we just, we don't have to be, you know, the tough guy. If something's wrong, we need to talk about it. We need to um, talk to our parents, talk to our physician about whatever is going on and not try to uh, be the tough guy and and not try to ignore it. And I think by doing that, I think men's health, I mean, I think if we, I think there's two approaches. One, you start when you're younger and then, and you start, and then you educate men as they're older and then somehow they catch up, right? Those young kids are going to get older and then they're going to continue to educate their kids. So you know my biggest hope is as parents, as our society, we, we try to teach our young men to, to as I men- as I mentioned to be advocates, but also to to come forward if they're having any issues, no matter what it is.
0: Thank you. What a great way to end this session and again appreciate the wisdom that you've shared. I'm confident that people will walk away with key learnings and um, also a sense of hope for their own well-being.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for tuning into this discussion on the FemPower Power Health Podcast. You can refer to the show notes for links To information that is referred to in this episode. And if you like this episode and found it timely and valuable, please take a moment to tell a friend or a colleague about FemPower Health. And right after this episode is over, please think of one person who might find this episode helpful and tell them about it. And if your friend is new to podcasting, please show them how to subscribe. Always talk to your doctor before making health-related decisions. Additionally, the views expressed by the FemPower Health podcast guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. See you next week. social media algorithms love today's insights show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at Fenpower power health it lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey amplifying the voices that need to be heard And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stages, ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com drop us a message on social media or hit reply on any newsletter your insights inspire our conversations and a quick note the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider it's not medical advice always consult with your doctor for health decisions and remember the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys and it's not an endorsement by fempower health here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time and I'll see you on the next FemPower Power Health podcast episode.